When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. You might have heard tell that there's a lot of talk in the political and cultural realms about things like identity and what it means to be an American and not be an American and where we've been and where we're going, identity politics, things like this. It's hard to talk about identity because identity means something a little different to everybody. And when you're talking about a large pluralistic society like America that has all kinds of different people from different backgrounds with different beliefs, there isn't really one overriding identity. Now, a lot of people think being an American should be that overriding identity, but even that people have different understandings of what it means to be an American. Does that mean they love America any less? Does that mean they're less of a patriot? Does that mean when they criticize America because they come from a background different than ours, that makes them less American? This is all stuff that's getting hashed out in culture and politics right now, and it's bleeding over into just about everything else we try to talk about. Social media and technology means that these things are now at the forefront of all our discussions. And part of that is that people maybe in a lot of ways for the first times in their lives are more and more aware that there's a whole lot of folks that aren't like them. So what are we going to do with all this? Well, we're going to turn to our friend, Dennis Sanders. This is somebody who I really respect. He's been a colleague of mine at Ordinary Times for quite a while. He has his own excellent podcast in route that he talks about those things that we always joked about at work, like you don't talk politics and religion. That's exactly what he talks about, politics and religion and how they intersect. But we want to talk to him today a little bit about some of the things going on in our culture and politics. And the conversation really took a turn towards identity. What's it mean to be an American? Not the buzzwords, not the things that just get talked about on social media, but our background, how post-World War II America has developed, how social media has changed that, how the current politics of the age we live in affects all these things. And it affects how we treat each other and how we treat each other greatly affects our politics. We get the government we deserve. And because we have a representative democracy style of government, that government reflects us. And when we can't get along with each other, we sure can't expect our government to. So when we look at government dysfunction, maybe we should start with ourselves. We're going to bring all these issues up with Dennis Sanders today on Hertel. He's going to talk to us. He's somebody that, even though I don't always agree with him, I greatly respect him. And I greatly listen to him very carefully when he speaks. He's a man with great wisdom and insight. And I think you'll appreciate this conversation. So our friend Dennis Sanders on Hertel, right after this. One of my favorites, get a talk with Dennis Sanders today. How are you up there in the North, my friend? I am doing well. Um, still waiting to see if we get some snow. I think we are going to get some finally this week, this coming weekend. Uh, do you, when people pray for snow, do you tell them that that is a mortal sin or a sin of omission or commission up your way? How does No, it's work? totally a mortal sin. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we have winter for six months it, no, <laughs> if we, you know, if we can push it off just enough, that's fine. I mean, I, I don't mind a little snow, but six months and when it's below zero, I'd like to try to, to kind of delay that as much as possible. 
That's uh, I don't know what the eschatology for snowstorms are, but we we'll might have to work that out in the future. Now, um, before we delve into all the politics and all the writing you've been doing on that, though, I want to talk about something else you've been writing on a lot. Uh, part of that is because your background, you are a pastor, mm-hmm. but you've been talking a lot about loneliness and you've been talking about friendship. What is it with all the political writing you do and the other stuff that you do in your life that got you writing about loneliness and friendship? Because it seems to me that it's something that everybody's aware of. We don't seem to talk about it a lot, but when we start really deep diving into some of our political and cultural issues, these are kind of underpinning source problems. And now you're kind of addressing them in your writing. So what got you writing on that and what are you finding with it? Well, I think partially it came from my own life um, in that I think dealing with some loneliness in my own life, um, I think, especially as I've gotten older um, into the, my 40s and, and 50s, um, how hard it is really to find places to really um, make friends and to be able to connect. And I think that that's just been something I think about and um, would like to be better at making friends and really kind of think, well, what is the the result of this? Because I'm obviously not the only one dealing with this. And there are probably people that are even dealing with this on a larger level. Um, So you kind of want to know what's going on in our culture that people feel like it's harder to to either have friends or they have kind of walled themselves off from other people and you know is and to say that doesn't mean that i some kind of hermit somewhere but i think it's it's kind of the the sense of how do we make connections and how are we trying to kind of sustain those connections and i think that's the thing that's i've i've seen and noticed and wondered with some of the, the events and uh, trends that are happening in our society, if kind of friendship and loneliness has something to do with that. I've, I've kind of taken to calling it avataring. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to me that folks, uh, and, and this is across ideological lines, it doesn't matter whether it's a progressive or a conservative or libertarian or whatever, there seems to be a lot of people that use, uh, especially social media and mass news media, but they tend to just latch on to somebody else and kind of take on the guise of them. That's why I call it avataring. They'll as a talking head, a commentator, uh, a famous person. And they're just like, well, whatever they say is what I believe. And they don't say it outwardly like that, but that's how it comes across. And that's how you sometimes get folks um, with some real inconsistencies in what they're professing. It would seem to me that people that are doing that, it would you know, stand to reason that there may be an underpinning of, well, that's replacing some kind of a personal relationship or at least uh, an outward relationship that they're trying to find. Is that kind of where you're thinking on that is like, well, maybe some of the loudest people uh, outside of the people that they're doing it as a business model, of course, uh, some of these loudest people, maybe it's just them replacing it and or they're acting out on something that they can't get in their lives outside of social media and the media. I think it is. I think you see that a lot in um, kind of the tribal nature of our politics. Um, People, I I think I've heard somewhere that there are sometimes friendships that are happening, but they're called strategic friendships in that they're friendships of people who you agree with um, that in some ways you can kind of feed off of each other and so you have that kind of a, a, of a relationship going, but it's not a real friendship. I mean, they're not necessarily sharing um, or being vulnerable with, with each other. It's more, I don't like this politician and you don't like him either. So we can, you know, gang up and, and kind of work together. Um, and I think then also you have a lot of, um, I think, political leaders out there that people latch on to um, because it, it, in some ways, it gives them a sense of meaning that I think that they're missing in their own life. Um, you know, I, I really do think a lot of the reason um, Donald Trump has become so popular is because there are a lot of people that um, are missing something in their own life. And somehow there is a connection there with Trump. And so that they're it, it kind of feeds a, 
a hunger that they have in their life and that this is the person that can kind of do that. And then on top of that, finding people who also have that interest and then also then hate the other side kind of makes it kind of a, a perfect storm. Unpack that just a little bit though, and not to get too deep into your the pastor hat that you wear on the side of everything else that you do. But when you talk about a relationship and how is it dangerous? Because I've, I've studied this and a lot of people have commented on this in other parts. When you have a relationship that doesn't have the depth that it has, but people are trying to put more depth on it than it has. And I mean, those connections, like you talked about things like openness, honesty, discussion, just, just talk about that for a second. Cause I know you've mentioned it before and other things is that's a poison pill to any relationship, whether it's an interpersonal relationship or especially if it's a political ideology or something like that, you're, you're kind of doomed from the start if it starts on that superficial level like that because you've already built in what's going to kill it, which is it's not real to start with, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not real, but I think it's also, even though it's not real, I think it still gives a sense of purpose to people. And there is something that was written by... Um, Damon Linker, probably two months ago, about friendship. And he kind of talked about the fact that the, the loss of kind of that connection of, of friendship in our society can sometimes lead to authoritarianism. And um, while I hate to, uh, to get into the quote unquote, the Nazi problem there, um, you know, there was this, in some ways, you could say some alienation in, in Germany of that time of, of the Weimar Republic, um, you know, when Hitler kind of came onto the scene, he brought in a lot of these beliefs and, and things about the German people that in some ways connected people. Um, and even though it was shallow, it had some sense of a, of a meaning of a shared purpose um, without all the kind of the vulnerabilities and I think when you have that, when you have the shared purpose, but you don't have the vulnerabilities, what you end up with is a really toxic stew so that you can really, I think, and that's what I think made that movement so powerful is that it became a movement basically based on hate and that hate had some meaning and purpose and all of that, that and that in some ways made Germany the, the society that it is. Um, and I think you can find that in other other authoritarian regimes. Um, you know, if, I think if you even went to um, Soviet era Russia, it would be like that. Um, or if you think about East Germany um, throughout that period, and um, it's kind of that thing of, of supporting or thinking that you're part of this greater whole, which is I think a a human longing, no matter. I'm both good and can be used for good and can be used for bad. And I think in this case, it's a longing to be a part of something that's bigger than you. And when you're part of that, um, and especially in this way where it's viewed on hating another person or another belief, um, I think it can really do some damage in a, in a free society. And so it is obviously it's not a real friendship and it's not um, it's an illusion in some ways, but things that aren't real sometimes can have a, a strong hold on us. And part of the reason we bring that up, because somebody might roll their eyes and go, Oh, well, that doesn't really have anything to do with my politics. Well, it kind of does because part of the problem we're having when you talk about fascist regimes or dictatorships, whether it's Russia um, we're seeing this play out in China right now uh, with mm-hmm. the IOC and the tennis player and all that. Uh, there is no basis to ever have any kind of accountability. And for a representative government like we have in America, or we're striving to have, I should say, we're falling a little short right now. When you don't have any personal accountability, there is no way ever that you're going to have institutional accountability. So when we see right now in China with this, the tennis player and the WTA took a, took a very strong stand and pulled out, God bless them. And the IOC is uh, 
as Bob Costas say, they're in bed with China. And I derisively said they're not only in bed, but the money's on the dresser. Um, with China, we're seeing what happens when there's no accountability, there's no media, there's no contrarian, there's no pushback. So, yeah, we can kind of roll our eyes and go, well, personal relationships, that doesn't affect my politics. But yeah, it does, because if you can't be accountable in your personal life, you're going to have no moral standing to demand accountability from your government. And then you're really in a bad spot where all sorts of bad stuff happens because you got no way to ever push back or raise a flag. Yeah. And I think that you're seeing that in our politics here um, domestically. I mean, I think it's, it's in both parties, but especially within the Republican Party, um, because of kind of the tribal nature, because we are kind of bound by people who we connect with because together we don't like the other person. What it does is that you can't ever criticize your own side um, for anything. And, you know, when you have cases of things going on, and, and as you've seen um, in the GOP, especially in Congress, where um, representatives can get away with saying or doing things that are incredibly off the pale, um, as long as they are on, you know, hating the other guy, it's fine. Now, if they ever criticize their own side, or if they say something nice about the other side, that's the thing that breaks you apart. That's the thing that will end the relationship, which of course then shows that it was never real to begin with, that it, it was a strategic thing. It was something that was based on um, the fact that you didn't like the other group and that that's what brought you together. Yeah. And I don't, I have trouble with the, you know, the enemy uh, thing being the foremost thing in somebody's politics because that's not going to work in a pluralistic society like America is because the problem with this is and we've talked about this before it's not really halves it's actually three you know thirds because you have you know a third of the people let's take the 2020 election just to simplify this you had a third of the people for Donald Trump a third of the people for Joe Biden and a third of them went we don't want nothing to do with either one of you you know you're not going to get rid of a two-thirds of the country that doesn't agree with you like there's no end spot to well we have to just be the enemy of these people at some point even you know you're not going to throw them in camps you're not going to run them off into the sea we still all have to live each other so i understand there's certain things we just have to draw hard lines on but at the same time there's no end game to that it's just reaction 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 and you're never going to get anything actually accomplished and what you're really doing is you're making yourself a permanent minority in politics because eventually there's just nobody left to fight. Against. You're fighting everybody. There's nobody left to be an ally because you've got a built in purity test and the purity test is never going to be good enough for anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I think one of the things that I'm, I've always been fascinated with um, historically, and if you know about Congress is that I think probably if you went from the 50s, maybe into the, at least the 80s, um, most of the, the representatives and senators lived in DC and they actually lived and they shared their lives with each other and regardless of their party affiliation. So they had developed relationships with people that they may not always agree with politically, but there was something there beyond their politics. And that that's, I think, because of that, I think it may have allowed for about a lot more of a compromise, a lot more of, of working together to solve issues, you know, knowing that, of course, they would have to, at during elections, compete with each other. Um, but when, once the elections were over, then they could, could get down together and work and govern. And I think we don't have that today because you know, people from different parties do not spend time with one another. They don't even live in D.C. They um, usually just kind of fly in, do what they're going to do and fly back out. They never spend any time with the other party. So at the end, they don't know these people. All they know, as you would say, is an avatar. And mm -hmm. an avatar isn't necessarily real. It, it's 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 just a, a representative of something, but it's not necessarily the person. And the other thing that's changed is 
what a professional politician is now. Whereas before a professional politician was very much uh, ingrained into what was going on in DC or in the state government, if it's a state level or, or the local level, whatever the case may be. Now the professional politician is ingrained in the political party themselves separate from that. And they're ingrained in the, a lot of cases, the ideology um, there's there's a very definitive lane and we've seen it now because they're getting people elected in office on both the left and the right that if you can just check the right kind of boxes you're going to have a political future but the problem is that keeps those people in those lanes um, that seems to be a change that we haven't really discussed a lot with the social media age and those sorts of things you're going to get and you always have outliers in congress it's not like we haven't had some real crazy people because and you always will that's kind of baked in the cake but it sure seems like it's streamlined now to get some real politically pure people out of certain parts of this country on in certain issues and in certain ideological lanes. But then they get to Congress, and that's exactly what you're going to get. And that's not really how Congress was designed to work, and not that it works great anyway, but that's, that's an obstacle I don't think we really have an answer for or that the system can really handle, do we? No, because what we end up with are entertainers. We don't have real people who are governing. governing. Um, years ago, well now it's about 30 years ago, I was an intern actually on Capitol Hill um, during um, when I was in college. And it was for my representative, um, a Democrat. Um, and he was a type that you didn't hear much about him. I mean, because he was busy and in committees, he was busy doing the work that needed to be done um, to represent his district in Michigan. And um, today, for some reason, I have to know about Margaret Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert. You know, in, you know, in the past, I, no one would have cared about some representative in Georgia or Colorado um, unless they were like, you know, either the head of a committee or um, the majority leader or the speaker. But now we know about these people because what they're doing is they're not really representing their district. They are basically entertaining people. And, and that's what I think latches people onto them is that they kind of provide, provide meaning. And, and I think they also um, are just a good time to watch and you can kind of watch mm -hmm. with your strategic friend and, kind of say, you know, yeah, we don't like that, those liberals and, or those rhinos or whatever. And, it, 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 and then nothing else gets done because that's not what they were elected for. They weren't really elected to actually get anything done. They were elected to just kind of be a fool on, in, on national television. How do you think we handle those? Because I'm, I'm always torn because both because I do, we do the writing stuff like at ordinary times, like, well, how do we cover these things? But then at the same time, you know, practically, what do you do with them? Cause my first instinct with, with wackadoos is you ignore them because everything you, you know, it's like, you know, it's like a grease fire. Anything you try to do to put it out, you're just going to spread it because everything's publicity to these people. Um, what do you think we should do to handle them? Because we can't really ignore them because that doesn't work. You can't engage them because there's no good faith there that, you know, you're, it's silly putty nailed to the wall. You're not going to get anything productive out of engaging with them. So what do we do? Because, and again, like you said, we have a lot of examples on the right right now because they're really loud. Um, we're going to have a midterm election. We certainly are going to have probably bomb throwers on the left side of the because they're going to see that model and replicate it because it's a it's a good money making model. So we're going to get and they already that. are. Yeah, this is going to be a self perpetuating thing. How do we deal with this? How do you think we should approach it? You've been in Congress as an intern. You've seen it, although it was a bit of a different era. What do we do? Because I don't know. I don't. I'm just asking the question. I don't know the right way to handle these people because you can't engage them and you can't ignore them. So what do we do? The easy answer, not well, not the easy answer. I think the main answer right now is I don't know. It, it's really hard to, as you said, it's hard. To, you can't really ignore them. And I don't know if you want to ignore them because some of what they says, say and do are, is rather dangerous and you have to speak out to them. But I think maybe part of the answer has to be politicians who are willing to kind of model 
a different way and to be um, a different kind of, of politician. And maybe who are able to kind of speak in ways that kind of can reach out um, of what it means to truly be a leader in, in, a, in our society, what it means to actually govern. Um, and hopefully that there are, are, are gonna be enough people um, out there that will listen and um, start to maybe demand more from their politicians and instead of just always electing um, these fools. But that's kind of what I have, but I, I, you know, it's, I really feel like sometimes we're at this crossroads in, in American society where the answers just don't come easy. And, and, you know, I think sometimes we want to think that if, if it all someone says is, or has some, some type of, of great saying, or if they can say the right thing, everything will be solved. And, and I'm thinking right now, we're not in that era where we can just easily kind of solve this, or at least put this crazy person in their, in their place, because that crazy person is really backed up by the society, larger society. And um, I think we have to kind of sit with that and, and, and figure out what is the answer. Um, because I don't think it's that it's going to be that easy. I would love to say that here's the answer that we can kind of combat the crazies, but I don't know. I really don't. We were kicking this around on the radio show a couple of days ago, and I, I, this is a really big thing. So, and, but I just want to throw it to you because I just want your reaction to it is we were, we were talking about, I think we're in a dispensation of time in America that we don't really understand because we've been so focused on post-World War II America for the last 70 years. And we've kind of lived on the fumes of that in a lot of ways. And we see the societal unrest because you have minorities and people like that, that are 20, 30 years behind that because of the civil rights movement and things is a lot of what we're seeing now. And I'm talking real big picture here, not just po politics is a lot of what we're seeing in America now that with social media, with the technology, we're just having a reckoning of what we are as a people. And because everybody has a voice and everybody has a face online now, and everybody has an ability to amplify and interconnect that we're just having a long overdue reckoning of, Hey, this really is a big, very diverse, very pluralistic society. And, and there's a battle Royale that's just got to be worked out because people are just for the first time, a lot of them realizing that, Hey, there's most of the people in this world and in this country aren't like me at all. And there's millions of them. Is, is that kind of big picture? What's really going on here is just for the first time people are having to deal with, Oh, my little conclave that I grew up with. I'm in a, I'm a global citizen now and people are having to try to work that out. And some of them aren't working it out real well. I think it is. I think we have been for a long time and, and the way our whole reality has been shaped up has been the post war consensus but you know the that consensus actually probably broke down in the 80s um and i think we are living with those fumes but every, but I, the 80s were so good See, I, not yeah. to interrupt mm -hmm. you but that's where no, i no. think that's where the breakdown is because we had the economic resurgence in the 80s i i think and you know i was a baby i bar i remember the late 80s because i was born in 1980 but but explain what you mean by that to folks that are maybe younger or just haven't thought of it that way, because people think of the 80s as a really good time in America. How can that be where the breakdown occurred? Because things were good in the 80s. We had, you know, pop culture explosion and MTV. Explain what you mean by that, because it runs counter to what a lot of people think that time was. So explain that a little bit, if you would, please. Well, yeah, and I think I probably would want to even back up a little bit more is that a lot of people like economists and some politicians and, and um, other experts would say that the, the post-war consensus that was made after World War II, some of both economically and, and politically probably ended around the mid seventies. So between like 1973 to 1975. So when you, and we know what happened me, right around that time. So. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, 
I don't really remember that time much because at that time I was um, a kid and it was I was born in six, 1969. So I don't remember the, the, the consensus. And we all know what happened with the 70s economically and all of that. Um, the 80s, I think the reason sometimes we remember it so fondly is that things did get better. And I think sometimes even though it got better, that doesn't mean that the, the consensus hadn't, you know, that things weren't changing. Um, that I think the economy was still kind of changing over. There was still lots of movement of what things were happening. You know, if you lived in Michigan in the 1980s, it was a mess because the auto industry was changing. We were dealing with competition from Japan but we were also dealing with technology and that you didn't need as many people to make um, cars and all of that. So though there were things that are happening, even though the, I think the, the wider economy was, were, was doing rather well, um, there were parts of it where things were changing. That was also you know, the rise of, of, I think, the tech industry um, becoming uh, greater. So, you know, even in those times of change and, and even in the times when, when a consensus has ended, there are going to be good points. I think that there are going to be times where things go well. Um, and I think that that went into the 90s um, as the economy was still going strong. It was probably even better than it was in the 80s um, where it kind of faltered and where we started to have problems, I would say is probably around the year 2000 politically, because of course that was the year of that election. And then I think that caught up then in 2008 with um, the economic problems and the crash of the market and all of that. Those two things together, I think really just kind of shattered any illusion that things were still going well. I mean, there was already a lot of change. Like I said, there was been a lot of change going in the 80s and 90s, but no one really noticed it as much because the economy was doing so well. When the economy wasn't doing as well, and then also when Washington wasn't doing as well, that's when we started to see things happening. Top that off with the fact that our society was changing. Um, we have, I think, for a long time, especially during the post-war consensus, World War II consensus, to put this probably in the most crudest way possible, we still thought of ourselves as a mostly white nation. That has been changing dramatically um, over the last 40, 50 years. Uh, immigration and, and other things have changed in that we are much more diverse than we ever have been. And that's gonna bring up, bring up a lot of questions and a lot of, of friction. Um, you know, this is why I think why we have this whole thing about the 1619 project when, and all of the kind of craziness on that is that we're all trying to figure out, okay, so now we have this country and what does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to live in America? What does it mean that we are a democracy, but yet we also have this horrible history of slavery or, or how we treated Native Americans? And so we're all trying to deal with all of those issues, some actually most not very well. Um, and so I think a lot of what we're seeing is, I think you are correct, that we're heading into something new and I think we're all nervous about it. And to talk about social media for a second, you, um, I don't know if you've read or heard, heard much from Martin Gurry, um, who talks a little bit about, you know, how the media was once that there were kind of gatekeepers um, in the media. And of course you only had at one time three networks and all of this stuff. And, you know, with social media, now anyone can say anything. And there are people who don't like that. They wish that we could go back to what it was, but that horse is out of the barn and into the next county and down the valley and into the next state. I mean, it's, it's just gone. There, I don't think we can go back to what we once were. 
I think we have to figure out what it means to live now in this era of social media. And, and instead of trying to long for some day that it is just not coming back. I think it's something else too, and not to get overly poetic about it. You know, I love my country. I'm, I, I'm very open about, you know, what I think about America. I think, I think my bona fides are a patriot are pretty well established at this point for a lot of reasons. I, I love my country. Part of this that we're talking about is understanding that I love my country. Other people also love our country, but they love it differently. And they express mm-hmm. that love differently. And they got there differently. And almost like a family relationship, not to beat a metaphor to death, but their relationship with the country has different baggage than mine. And mm-hmm. they have different experiences with their country than I do. And it's and unless you're just going to really do a deep dive into history, which granted guilty because I'm, you know, a history guy at heart. And my dad was a history teacher and made sure I knew all that stuff. Um a lot of people just don't have, maybe they've never taken the time to understand that, hey, they can still love this thing that I love. They're just loving it differently and they're loving it from a different point of view. But mm-hmm. that's that's some that's not just advanced citizenship, which America demands of us. That's advanced adulting. And yes, I don't think it's something we can really teach. I don't think you can. You certainly can't legislate it. You're not going to make people do it. But I think it's a model behavior and a and an advocacy thing where we just have to keep pushing people to go like, hey, you part of one of the great freedoms in America is the freedom to be wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's OK if their view of our country is different. And it does, even if they're critical of the country, that doesn't that's something I've had to mature and kind of grow up about is like just because they're critical of the country and I love my country doesn't mean they don't love their country. A lot of them are critical because they care so dang much about it it's coming off as anger and it's coming off as frustration and they want things to be better. This isn't just a political thing. This is, this is adulting. This is grown, you know, it's in my family, this is grown folk stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's just not enough people at the grown folk table to talk about this right now because people keep coming with mess and getting sent to the kids table. I don't know what kind of your family you grew up in, but that's how it work. You know, grown folk talk at the grown folk table. That's a privilege, not a right. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that those are the things that we just don't have a good way of dealing with right now of, hey, this is the advanced adult citizenship we need to work on to maintain being a great country. And I think maybe we're in some growing pains or maybe even maybe birthing pains because we're still a young country. Maybe this is just the birthing pains of making a, a great society that's going to last more than two or 300 years. If you're going to have that thousand year thing that a lot of countries and societies and cultures are this is the process is that is that maybe part of it is like we just don't have a maturity to it i think it is there i'm reminded and i'm probably going to butcher this but it's a a quote by james baldwin that says you know i love my country and i love it i love it enough that i'm I'm willing to criticize it and i think for myself being african-american and and i think that this is something that i've i've realized i think for most african-americans and is that we have a have to live with in a way with a duality and the duality is is that we love our country i mean there's a reason that martin luther king spoke and used the words of the founding fathers and the, and the declaration of independence because this is who we are we are americans that's why we're fighting for all for civil rights but you also know the past I mean, I know my father growing up in Jim Crow, Louisiana. I know that I have, you know, my ancestors were slaves. So you know that history and you know how we have been treated in the past. And, and, you know, to be honest, that we're still kind of dealing with some of those issues today, even though I think it's it's much better um, than what it was. And I think that for people, especially I think for, for white Americans and for there has been a certain view of America that has almost been perfect, um, that we haven't had any real big issues and, and issues have all been solved. And, and I think that's kind of one of the, one of the things that are getting into the whole like critical race theory stuff. Um, and I say this knowing that there are things you can be critical about critical race theory, but I think a lot of it is this fear of hearing about things about America that aren't always so 
great that we are we weren't always the guys with the white hats um and so there's this fear that if i have to see something critical about america then that means i hate america and then that is not the case um this is a big diverse and i will also say complex country but i think for all of it i think we're a good country but good does not mean perfect good just means good and i think you know part of that maturity will come from being willing to kind of understand our past um understanding some of the the parts of our present that need to be corrected um and yet understanding that there are still things that are good about this country. Um, now, I, I probably should add on the other side of that because there are people, I've been kind of basically talking from the right, from the left of saying there, you can have people doing things that are bad and they can still also be good people. Um, that happens too. and. We have to, I think, admit there are also good things about this country. Um, personally, I think, you know, the fact that this country, barely 50 years after the civil rights movement, was able to elect a black man to become president twice says something about us. Um, I think that that's something that we need to also take to heart as well. And so I think it, it, there's a kind of maturity that has to come from, I think, both sides of the aisle of, of being willing to deal with the good and the bad and not kind of have this whatever kind of avatarish view of America. We were talking about the 80s and 90s. Um, one of your favorite little side projects in writing the last few years is uh, you've been writing over and over and over again about Sears. <laughs> and yeah. when we talk about the economics of the 80s and 90s and, and that kind of the the Reagan resurgence or whatever you want to call it in the in the 80s, coming back from the, the 70s malaise, uh, when that happened, Sears was the big dog on the block. They were the most yep. dominant, uh, whatever you want to call it. They were the most dominant uh, purveyor of merchandise in America for 100 years for the young folks. They were the Amazon for the middle-aged folks. They were the Walmart of their day for a hundred years in this country. And now they're non-existent. In fact, and I know here they just tore down the big end cap off the mall and they're putting in a uh, rooms to go in a Dave and Buster's over top of it. Yay mm -hmm. progress. Um, but you've talked about Sears and the demise of Sears, but when we talk about those things like the changes in the eighties and nineties um, and we look at, you know, people are trying to draw comparisons to some of the seventies economics and what's going on now. Sears is an interesting way to kind of address that because here we have a representative thing in history. Uh, talk about that for a minute. Why do you keep getting drawn back to that story of Sears? Cause you've written over it over and over again for the better part of two years. Now you keep coming back to this. What is it that's drawing you in about Sears and what lessons are you learning out of it that you're applying to today? There are a lot of things. I think a lot of it has to do with my own background. You know, part of it is being a child of the seventies um, back in the seventies, Sears was everything. I mean, my dad got his lawnmower from there. Um, I think we got some other kind of appliances. We would go shopping there. This is a um, very Midwest clothing. story you got going right here. So this you is, might want to clarify where you, this is Michigan now or this is Michigan. Yeah. And and on top of that, because they're related, you know, Sears and Kmart merged in the mid aughts and Kmart was based in Michigan. So Kmart was kind of the, the local company made good and so you know that was also kind of a big thing they had you know the blue light specials and they had these really good sub sandwiches that i really loved and now i miss um you know it's those things that are about that and um i think also even though i'm i think very much on the center right politically um being from michigan being that both my parents were auto workers. I, had, I come from this kind of labor background. So that just never leaves me. And I think one of the things that I've been noticing about Sears, and, and I think you have talked a lot about kind of supply chain issues with um, on things, and, and we'll probably talk about that with Sears. I'm looking at it kind of from the um, political financial side in, in that the I think what happened in the 80s 
in 90s is that you kind of saw the rise of um, uh, private equity funds and hedge funds. And um, I think Sears, the story of Sears is kind of the kind of changing parts of America. Um, in the mid aughts, when the two companies merged, um, that's when you saw um, the rise of Eddie Lampert. He was the as uh, the head of a of a hedge fund, um, and basically was kind of the driving force. Um, he was, um, I think, chairman of the board in the um, mid aughts into the early teens, and then um, became the CEO of Sears. And during that time period, um, there was no money really was being put into the stores at all. So you would go into a Sears or go into a Kmart, maybe circa 2012, and they did not look great. They really looked horrible, um, as if they had not been updated since 1989 or something, um, which is you know very different from going into a Walmart or a Target. And so they hadn't really put anything into it. They started losing more and more market share. Um, and a few months ago, I interviewed a, a retail uh, journalist, Warren um, Schulberg. And one of the things that he said about Lampert was basically, Lampert said that he wanted to kind of make the companies great. He would always talk about um, things, a turnaround plan. But his real plan really was to take the money out of the company, which is what he did, um, is to close down stores, to um, kind of do some real estate shenanigans that would also enrich himself and then stockholders to the point, of course, that they got to 2018 and had to uh, declare bankruptcy. Um, but even then, and I also know I haven't done as much looking into this, but it, it did a lot of messing with the pension plans for workers both here and I think especially in Canada. Um, he also, it also, you know, obviously lots of people lost their jobs, um, both at corporate and then also in the stores. Um, and some of those jobs were, I think, good paying jobs that are, they, people lost. Um, so when I think I look at Sears, Sears is, is a story, I think, of what has happened in our society that seems to, and especially in our economy, that I think has placed more emphasis on a shareholder or on profit alone and not on kind of people and, cus and customers and all of that. Um, and Sears, I think, is just the model of what I see happening in other parts of, of our economy. Um, Toys R Us was another example that was owned by a private equity um, company that was basically, it got stuck with a lot of the debt that the private equity took on. And so Toys R Us is, is gone. Um, that's happened with, um, this is a local or a regional chain, um, Shopco, which was kind of a target for small towns. Again, it was bought by a private equity firm and went from really a strong company to just kind of having to declare um, liquidation in, in early uh, 2019. So you're, and, um, then also you, there's a hedge fund that has been buying up a lot of newspapers, stripping them of all of their assets, basically squeezing out what, what profits. And that has actually really affected local news in, in some ways. So all of that, I think Sears is basically the story that shows what is happening in our society um, and that we're not focusing really on, business is not focusing on business. It's basically how to make a, a quick buck. And that brings about questions. And I think that can also feed into some of the other things that we've been talking about earlier um, in this, in, in our podcast. Is there a blue light special that'll fix American politics? <laughs> oh God, there's going to be, it have to be a lot of blue light specials to do that. Um, I don't know. Actually, it, you know, we got a generation. Explain the blue light special because I, I vaguely remember them when they actually still actually had them on the post and, the, and yeah. they'd, wheel, they'd wheel out the little 
I guess it was a kiosk kind of thing. They'd wheel it out and then put something around it. it for the younger folks or folks that don't know what that is, can you actually explain the blue light special? Because it's entered the parlance where people talk about it. I Maybe folks don't actually know what it actually really was, though. So explain it because you obviously love it and your sub sandwiches and all that. So go for it. Yeah. Well, the blue light special was um, it was a, an actual blue light. And if I remember, it was kind of like a, uh, a siren um, light. Yeah, that Andy would Griffin be on a car cars what we're exactly talking about yeah. and they put it in a certain area and for 15 minutes in that area something was on sale and so and they put it over the speaker that there was a blue light special in i don't know automotive or blue light special in women's coats or something for 15 minutes so it was kind of that that sense of there is um a bargain and you don't know when it's going to happen. It could happen anytime and it could happen any place. So people kind of were always on the lookout for, for this special because it wasn't something that was nor It wasn't just like any regular sale. It was kind of a, a sale that would just kind of like Brigadoon just kind of show up a certain time and then would just vanish after a few minutes. Um, and I think that's what made it kind of such a, a cultural staple is that it was a certain amount of, of, of um, time and you didn't know when it was going to happen. We got a Brigadoon and a James Baldwin quote all in the same episode. <laughs> That's pretty impressive range there. Um, one other thing I wanted to ask you before we let you go, though. Um, we've had all these big court cases. Uh, the Armada Aubrey case has now ended down in Georgia. George Floyd happened in your backyard. Um, that's your community. You live in that community. You pastor in that community. You walk the streets after the damage of the rioting and all that. So that was something very personal to you. And then you went through the court case uh, and the conviction of the officer involved and the other ones are still pending, but you've got a little bit of space from it. The community in Georgia, this is fresh for them. What would you tell them? You know, they've, I hate to say it's justice because there's no justice for what happened to him temporarily. But we did have a verdict. We have a, there's going to be a very harsh sentence for these gentlemen. What would you tell the community? Because your community just went through this. The national media will now move on to something else. But you've, you've had time to process this in your community. What would you say to that community now? Um, kind of put your pastor hat on for a minute and just say, all right, here's what you're going to experience where you come off the high of the verdict and the media is going to go away and then you're going to start processing all this. What would you tell those folks? Well, I, I think that it's it's going to be a long process. Um, I think here in Minneapolis, we are still dealing from the fallout of what happened in 2020. Um, and some of what has happened um, with the, the verdict and then the sentencing um, is both good but i think some people will feel isn't enough and probably will not be um as i always like to say justice on this side of heaven is always going to be imperfect um and in fact there's an article that i read in um christianity today by an african-american anglican priest and she basically said the same thing that there is a sense of justice and that's important but, you know, we know, but the, 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 the bad side about that or the, the, the shortcoming is Ahmaud Arbery is still dead. He's not coming back to life. And that right now where we are is going to be an impartial justice. On the other side of heaven, there will be full justice. But right now, this is what we have to deal with. And I think that's what I would say, you know, here in Minnesota, we have to deal with the partial injustice of um, the partial, I'm sorry, partial justice that someone was brought to account. And we still have the other three um, um, police that have to be uh, tried. And I think they're going to be tried early next year. Um, and that's important. Um, but it's always going to feel somewhat incomplete. And I think that if you are someone of person of faith, it's to know that there will be a day when it is totally, total justice will happen. 
but I think in the meantime is that we continue to work for ways to prevent things like this from happening again, whether it's police misconduct, like here in Minnesota, or kind of just kind of, for lack of a better word, rank racism as it was in Georgia. Um, it's, we're trying to work to change that. You know, I think one example that I think happened in Georgia that was good was that the state um, immediately kind of dealt with the law that was being used for like citizens arrests. And this was a law that came out during the civil war um, and had been just on the books for a long time. And I think the, the um, basically both the um, legislature and the governor both I think quickly moved to just get rid of it. And I think that that's, that's a step. It's a step in the right direction and I think that that's kind of what we have to do is, is to make those, those little steps. And again, they aren't going to all be perfect, but I think it will bring us, at least in this, this existence, will be something and will make a difference. And one of the reasons I like uh, working with you with your writing and talking to you when we do your podcast or my podcast is... Uh, you, sir, are definitely one of those good humans that are trying to make things better and doing, and I always appreciate your viewpoints. Uh, I love your podcast. I've been on it a couple of times. I've been privileged to, uh, usually it's talking about something I'd rather not talk about, but that's the breaks. <laughs> Uh, but let folks know about your podcast because uh, you, you are, of course, a unique voice, and I respect you both as a friend and as a as a contemporary. But let folks know about your podcast and and tell them why it's called what it is and what you're trying to do with it, because it's just not uh, the normal culture and politics podcast like I and a lot of other people do. You you've got a specific purpose you're shooting for with that. Mm -hmm. Well, the name of the podcast is En Route, and I kind of chose that for a lot of different reasons, but one was um, I'm someone, obviously I have had an interest in cars and in travel and all that and travel. And, and I think it's just part of who I am that things are, I don't see things as always, this is what it is. And I always see things in process and things that are happening and, and journeying and in route in some ways is that's you use that word to say that you're, heading towards something. And um, I think that's kind of where I see us as a society. And especially to me, when it comes to um, issues of faith, I see that's where it's going. Um, the way that the, the podcast is set up is to deal primarily with um, religion and, and where it intersects with modern life, with politics, with culture, society. Um, I will kind of focus on various aspects of religion. I've been kind of focusing, especially on mainline Protestant Protestantism, partially because it's an, um, a part of Christianity that we don't hear much about. And when we do, it's usually that it's declining or some silly thing that's happening. And there's a lot of silly stuff that happens within mainline Protestantism. But there are also a lot of stories and there are, it's an important tradition um, especially in American society, I think. And I think it is in decline. And I think it's something that those, those stories need to be told, but also we need to find ways of hopefully maybe strengthening this tradition, because I think that it's, it's vital to um, American society. Um, doesn't mean that I won't focus on other aspects such as um, evangelicalism or, or Catholicism, um, or even looking into other religions like Judaism. But that's kind of been my focus. Um, and it's kind of bringing together my, my background as a pastor, um, but also my, my training as a journalist. And so that I'm looking at this kind of with a journalist eye of, as I kind of like to say, the who, what, when, where, why, and how of um, religion and modern life. So that's kind of what I've been doing. Um, if you're someone that is interested in kind of seeing where and how religion is kind of um, working in the 21st century, um, where we're changing, where we're going. Um, please, I would love to have you uh, listen and join in on the podcast. Yeah, it's a great podcast. Folks can find it. It's on all the major platforms. Uh, 
Dennis Saunders, I always tell you I respect you and I mean that. Uh, but you you've got a you're a great writer, first of all, how I've met you working with you at ordinary times. But uh, I'm glad you're in the arena of ideas, my friend, because I always appreciate your insights. I love being able to run things past you. And I appreciate you taking a shot at the the things folks sometimes don't want to mix together, like religion and politics. So I appreciate <laughs> you very much, my friend. And uh, you might want to you might want to go get a trademark on that blue light special politics thing. There might be some money there for you. That's good branding. That's not, yeah, that might be. Maybe to think about that. I do want to add, if you want to know more about the podcast, you can go to enroutepodcast, all one word, dot org. And he's on uh, the Twitter at uh, at Denmin with two mm-hmm. N's. Uh, that's Denmin, M-I-N-N, like Minnesota. You can see what he did there. Uh, great Twitter follower and a great friend of ours. So, sir, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. I'm glad we were able to talk again. Yeah, we'll do it again soon, sir. Thank you. Definitely. All right. I always enjoyed talking to my friend Dennis, but uh, since he brought up James Baldwin to wrap up this uh, discussion on things like identity and country and how we perceive things and how perception changes how we perceive things, he referenced the James Baldwin quote. So I'll just read you a passage of James Baldwin that I've been pondering on a lot lately since it was brought to my attention by another one of our friends, Rufus, who writes the Sunday column at Ordinary Times at Ordinary-Times.com. And I encourage you to always read his stuff. James Baldwin said this. The poets, by which I mean all artists, are finally the only people who know the truth about us. Soldiers don't. Statements don't. Priests don't. Union leaders don't. Only the poets. That's my first proposition. The second proposition, and it sounds mythical, I think, in a country like ours and at a time like this, but something awful is happening to a civilization when it ceases to produce poets. And what is even more crucial, when it ceases in any way whatever, to believe in the report that only poets can make. People, millions of people whom you will never see, who don't know you, never will know you. People who may try to kill you in the morning live in a darkness, which if you have that funny, terrible thing that every artist can recognize and no artist can define, you are responsible to those people to lighten that darkness. This force which you didn't ask for and this destiny which you must accept is also your responsibility. And if you survive it, if you don't cheat, if you don't lie, It is not only your glory, your achievement. It is almost our only hope. Heavy words for something of a wide-ranging and heavy topic to get our arms around. But there's something really true to this. We get really wrapped up in our culture and politics discussions, and we kind of get down our rabbit holes and chasing things and get wrapped up in it so far that sometimes we lose the wider perspective. That's what James Baldwin was talking about with the poets. Sometimes you need those outside voices that can take the whole of the society to identify what the problems are because we get into our lanes or we get into our ruts and all we see is what's right in front of us and solving the problem at hand. Our country is big. It's pluralistic. It's getting more and more diverse as we go down the road. And that means we're going to have to figure out a way to have wider perspectives to deal with each other with respect in a better way. The greatness of America has always been its ability to take anybody and let them be an American in their own way. We need to make sure that's what we're doing. When we say we love America and we want America to continue to be the greatest country and we want this, the greatest experiment in a free people self-governing to continue, we need to make sure we keep that at the top of our mind, that it's okay if their version of America is a little bit different than ours, because that was the point in the first place. That'll do it for Hertel. However, you're listening to us, whether it's on the podcast, iTunes, Spotify, any of the major platforms, we're on all of them now. Or if you're watching on the YouTube channel, we sure appreciate you. If you do us a favor, make sure to leave a comment and a rating if you have an ability to do that. We would really appreciate it. Uh, that's a big deal for us. It only takes you a couple clicks in a few seconds, but it lets people know that our program's worth checking out. We never want to waste your time. We put a lot of effort into it to make sure we're bringing good information to turn down the news cycle noise and help discern the times we live in. And we think folks find it well. We know from the feedback we get from you that you guys are enjoying it. And as long as you're listening, we're going to keep doing it. So if you can leave those comments and ratings, that would be great. You want to do us another real good solid? Put us out on your social media, your Facebook pages, your Twitter feeds, whatever you may have. Let people know where to find us. We'd sure appreciate it. 
as we enter into the holiday season, getting deeper into December now, as we record this, we hope you and yours are well wherever you are across the street or around the world. We hope you're well. We hope you're well fed. Until we talk to you again, y'all take care. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.